And last night we were talking about the grounds, I should say last night and yesterday morning, we were talking about the grounds of salvation, talking about the atonement and what God has done in the atonement in providing a way for us to be able to be released from the penalty of the law that we deserve to receive and to be able to be restored in fellowship with him. The whole thing, of course, is based around relationship. This morning we want to talk about the other half of the, the picture, and that is the conditions of salvation, the conditions that we have to meet. Now, we saw last night why we have to meet conditions, because if we aren't brought to the place where we're fulfilling the end of the government, then God doesn't have a, a right justly to release us from the penalty of the law. And so if the conditions are not met, it doesn't matter whether or not an atonement has been offered. It doesn't do us any good if the conditions aren't met. Okay, so um, I'm going to name four basic conditions of salvation, even though they can all be wrapped up into one, uh, one idea, and that is the, the idea of reconciliation being restored to fellowship with God. Um, the basis of, of reconciliation being restored to relationship with God is the cross, of course, the atonement. Um, the conditions, then, we're going to divide them up into four to talk about different aspects of the idea of reconciliation and what's necessary in that. Number one is the idea of conviction. Until the moral being that is in rebellion against God recognizes that he is guilty, he or she, is guilty and needs to be forgiven, or basically, um, as some people put it, you got to get them lost before you can get them saved or found, whatever it is. Um, until a being understands that he is, he is guilty in respect to the law, sees his rebellion, uh, begins to understand what his sin is like, then that, that being is not open to receiving mercy. That being justly cannot receive mercy. The Bible says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy He'll fi or will find compassion. So then God can't have, justly, he cannot have mercy upon someone who does not recognize that they are guilty and doesn't confess that and turn away from it. He who covers his sins will not prosper. A person does not will not recognize that they are guilty. Um, but who, whoever confesses them and forsakes them will have mercy. Not just saying, yes, I'm wrong, but it's turning away from them and choosing to do something else. It's ceasing to do evil and learning to do good, like we saw last night. So then, unless the person recognizes that they are wrong and it makes a, a commitment to change, then they cannot be forgiven. They cannot be released. That's a condition of salvation. What do we mean by a condition? Condition is something that is absolutely necessary for something else to follow. That without which the next thing will not follow. A condition is something without which something else will not follow. In other words, if you don't have that, whatever that condition happens to be, the thing that, that should follow it will not follow it. It is the that without which the other thing will not follow. Or it will not follow without it. Whatever. <laughs> Basic idea. Now, what is conviction? The word convict means to present evidence 
to show that a being is guilty until the mind of the being concludes, or being concludes, that the being is guilty. Okay, it's like, um, like if you're in court and they're trying to find out if someone has killed someone else and they keep presenting evidence to show that this person had to be the one that was responsible for the killing of the other person, that when they've presented enough evidence, then it will present itself to the mind of the judge, the jury, and sometimes even to the person who's trying to say that they didn't do it. It will um, present itself to their minds in such a way, this evidence will, that, the, that they, they will have to come to the conclusion, this person is guilty. That's what conviction is. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts us, or when we are convicted with the truth, it means that the truth is submitted to our minds, or the Holy Spirit submits truth to our minds, until we in our minds come to the conclusion, guilty. That's what it means to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. You get that? The legal thing. Okay, now we need to understand that. It's not, it's not just a funny feeling that comes over you because the Holy Spirit is uh, speaking to you. It's when the Holy Spirit shows you in your mind that you are guilty and presents enough evidence until you have to come to the conclusion that I am guilty. Okay? And that can happen very quickly when we're dealing with people. You might be talking with someone and just um, just might be sharing the, the idea of being selfish. And the conviction could, and the Holy Spirit can take that and put it into the person's mind in such a way that they automatically see, I'm guilty. Okay? And so what we have to do then is become agents, which we'll talk about in a while, uh, become agents with the Holy Spirit to present truth to people's minds. That's what we're doing in witnessing to other people. Um, yeah, let's hold the, hold the question. Okay, so then, um, well, I was talking with a fellow one time and he said, I don't know what my, what my problem is. You know, my life is just really a mess. I just don't understand what my problem is. And I said, because you're selfish. He said, yeah, because I'm selfish. And then he just hung his head and started to cry. And just, uh, that was all it took. You know, he recognized that he was selfish. And all I had to do was point out to him, yes, you're selfish. I was talking to another guy and was talking about uh, ultimate intentions and subordinate uh, choices and routine choices. And I was working away on the blackboard and I had ultimate intention. I had it divided into self and, and God, you know, you're either living for God or you're living for yourself. And I was trying to explain this to him, you know, and uh, just teaching away, and I was going down the list, and I was saying, now, subordinate choices, and, and I was explaining what they were, and routine choices, and I was trying to give him some truth, see, and uh, he was he began to be very fidgety, and I realized he wasn't paying attention to what I was saying, and uh, so I stopped, and there was a short, short pause, short silence, and then he took his hand, took his fist, and it took the word self up here. And he went, I'm here, I'm here, what do I do, what do I do? <laughs> he, was, he was back there at self when I mentioned that, that the problem is that people live for themselves and they're centered around their self-gratification instead of living for God. No, that's all I, all I said. You know, and he wasn't paying any attention from then on. So uh, you have to expect that the Holy Spirit's going to take the truth as we present it to people. Okay? Well, the problem is sometimes we've been taught such weird things about the gospel that we don't know what to present to people uh, that the Holy Spirit can use 
in convicting people. You know, if we present things to people that the Holy Spirit can't use, then we can't expect him to bless what we're talking about. Okay? If we tell people that they're basically they're not responsible, you know, you know human beings sin because they're human beings, and you know, we can't really... You know, that gives people the idea that they're not really responsible. The Holy Spirit can't bless that. Okay? Because everywhere through the Bible, God says, you sinned, you could have not done that, you are guilty. God does that all the way through. We need to do the same thing. <laughs> talking with a fellow one night, and he was, he was already under conviction. I've been talking to him for about four weeks. Great. And uh, an officer in the army. And he, he, uh, he was sitting at the, he came to me after the coffee shop had closed, and he was sitting while we were talking. He said, you know, he said, I, I recognize that I'm selfish. And I said, yes, that's true. You're selfish. And uh, what could I say? You're not. <laughs> Couldn't do anything but that. And uh, he said, yeah. And, uh, and then we were talking, we talked a little bit more, and I said, yeah. We talked, he said something about the devil. I said, do you suppose that the devil should get it and you shouldn't? <laughs> well, what could I say? You know, if a person's guilty, they deserve to be punished. So anyway, he became a Christian that night. Oh. It was neat too what the Lord used to point it out to him. He was, he was, he said something to me about three days before that. He said something to me, and I just stared at him. And he knew what was going on in my head. That I knew that the reason that he had said what he had said was selfish. And I, all, all I do was just look at him, and he recognized that I knew what his motives were. And then that night when he became a Christian, he, um, he. He said, you knew when I did that that I was being selfish, didn't you? And I said, yep. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I recognize that you did that. And uh, he said, I began to see my selfishness too. So uh, it doesn't always even have to be a word. So like do something selfish and you just go. And they can get the point. Okay? But to convict someone, it means to present evidence to their minds until they come to the conclusion, guilty. They might not like to come to that conclusion, but they should come to it. Okay? So a person has to have an understanding of sin and what it does. This is one of the conditions of salvation. Until a person is brought to the place that they understand what sin is like, what its nature is, that they're guilty for it, that, they're, that what it does to God, what it does to other people, that sin deserves to be punished. And until they come to that place, they're not ready to receive mercy. Okay? They're not, they're not going to look for mercy if they don't think that they need it. And until a person is convicted of sin, they won't, they don't recognize that. So, many times, we start immediately talking about repentance before we've talked with the person about conviction. We start talking with them about turning away from sin before they really, really realize, understand what sin is, what sin does, why they're guilty, why they need to repent, or anything like that. And we don't do the first part, and we tell them about repentance, and they get all kinds of screwy ideas as to what it means to repent, and, uh, they get an idea that it's just an emotional thing, and, all kinds of wrong things. You need to start with conviction of sin. And then we move to repentance. And go on to repentance. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from sin. Which is what? It's having your life. Now see, when we deal with somebody in, in, in conversion, we're talking about the way that they're living their life, their, their whole intention in life, or what we call their ultimate intention in life. And we're not dealing with the subordinate or routine choices. Now, not all choices in your life have the same effect on your life. The choice to get married will have much more effect on your life 
and, and much more change will come into your life and, and uh, it will direct much more of your life than the choice to buy a Coke or not to buy a Coke. You understand that? <laughs> Those of you who are married understand that. Yes. Okay, a lot, a lot of things change when you get married. It directs a lot of your other choices. You see, there are a lot of things you can't do, a lot of things you will do, you see, then because you're married that you wouldn't have done before. A lot of things that you won't do that you could have been able to do before but can't now, you see. Um, very interesting learning to think we. To think of myself as two, really interesting. But uh, I talked to somebody, I said, how long have you married? So oh, about nine years. And, I said, and he said, I'm still having trouble learning to think we. And I thought, well, I'll give myself a few years then. <laughs> I won't be so upset with myself. But in our lives, not every choice that we make has the same, uh, same impact on our lives. And we, we make what we call routine choices. That is, those choices that we make every day to brush our teeth, to, uh, I hope we make that every day, um, to brush our teeth, to put on our shoes, to put on our clothes, to get out of bed. <laughs> Hopefully we make that. Um, okay? To, to try to wake up or something like that. Oh, I didn't want to wake up this morning. Oh, did I want to sleep? I thought, oh well, you have to get up anyway, so get up and pray. Anyway, that's, that, that gives you something to get up for, okay, if you like to pray. Well, get up and pray. I don't always feel like that. Sometimes I do. <laughs> okay. Um, but these choices don't have very much effect on your life. Whether you wear these shoes or that shoes doesn't make a whole lot of effect on your life. You may get wet feet if you wear the wrong shoes or your sandals out in the snow, um, which hopefully you would make that kind of a choice. But that kind of a choice doesn't have a whole lot of effect on your life. But there are some choices. See, these choices in themselves don't really, don't really come just as choices in themselves. They come from other choices that you have already made in your life. Like the choice to try to protect yourself from the cold or to try to keep your body fit determines whether or not you're going to wear a hat when you go out all the time. You see? You can wonder why I wear my hat. Because I made a choice to try to keep my body in some kind of shape. Some kind, I don't know exactly what it is, but... Okay, so these choices here, routine choices, come from other choices which we make, which we're going to call... Yeah, some people call them executive choices, some people call them subordinate choices. We'll call them subordinate. Subordinate to what? Subordinate to the one main intention, the overall intention that you have in your life, which we will call the ultimate intention. And the choices, now these could be divided into thousands of choices that we make in our lifetime, or millions that we make in our lifetime, because we're constantly making choices. But most of the choices are routine choices that are already, you know, whether you're going to sit or stand while you listen to me speak, they're routine choices that are already determined by something else, some other choice that you have made. Now, if I choose to go to Bible school, I would call that a subordinate choice, and that determines a lot of things that I'm going to do as routine. Homework. You know, if I determine to go to Bible school, I'm also choosing along with that to do a lot of routine things like homework every day. I'm choosing to, to, to change location. And to I, I, that's what I'm speaking for my own life. Maybe choosing to change location. Um, I chose to go to another place, another city, to go to Bible school. And so it changed a lot of routine choices in my life. 
it, um, I went and got a job. I didn't have a job before that. Came out of high school. And so that changed a lot of things in my life on the routine level. But it came from the subordinate choice. And because I made the subordinate choice, I was therefore m determining that I was going to have certain routine choices by the subordinate choice that I had made. Now, why did I make that subordinate choice? Because I have a certain ultimate intention in my life, and that is to please the Lord. I'm living for God and not for myself. And so God said, I want you to go to Bible school. And so I made this subordinate choice. I was obedient to him and went to Bible school rather than going to a secular college and becoming a teacher like my mother wanted me to do. Okay? So that I made this subordinate choice, which determined a lot of routine choices, because of my ultimate intention in life. It was because I was living for God and not living for myself that I went to Bible school rather than to some other place. You see? So the ultimate intention determines a lot of the subordinate, well, determines the subordinate choices that you're going to make. And then the routine choices flow out of that. And so you have sort of like your one choice at the top goes down to a whole lot of choices, subordinate choices, and then goes out into just thousands of routine choices that you make. Um, and they come from your ultimate intention. Now, um, I am not convinced personally that because your ultimate intention, which we commonly call motive, and refer to it as motive, the end for which you're living in life, but the, um, I'm not convinced that the ultimate intention determines the subordinate and the routine choices in such a fashion that you cannot have a routine or subordinate choice that is inconsistent with your ultimate intention. I do not agree with that. I mean, you'll, you'll probably hear that. Gordon doesn't agree with it either, but uh, the Harry Kahn and Charles Finney do, and they have their reasons why they believe that. But um, you can see what that would do if you say, um, say, Charles Finney says that if you have an ultimate intention, your subordinate routine choices are determined by your ultimate intention to the point that if you have make a routine choice, to do something that is selfish, you have changed your ultimate intention in life. You see? You didn't know Finney said that, huh? Well, it's really interesting because Finney says that, and then a while later in his section on sanctification, he says, now, the sinning child of God, and I went, what are you talking about, Finney? You just said that you can't be a child of God, you can't be having an ultimate intention that is, that is for God if you, if you choose on a routine level to make a choice that's wrong, and yet you talk about the sinning child of God. And I wonder if maybe Finney didn't tell us everything that was going on his head, in his head so we could understand what he was talking about. Okay? But I don't agree with the idea that a ro one routine choice, because see, this doesn't have much effect in our life. It doesn't have the same effect as an ultimate, the major reason why we're living in our life. It doesn't have the same kind of effect. To make the choice not to brush my teeth, the Lord may convict me of that, but that doesn't have the same kind of effect in my life as um, turning my whole life away from the Lord and living for self-gratification again. You understand what I'm talking about? In other words, you can strain your relationship with the Lord without breaking it off. Um, we have here, we're either living for God or basically for what we know to be, to be right and living up to that knowledge or we're living for ourselves, living for self-gratification with everything centered around ourselves. Okay, we have one of those two, it appears in the scripture. You're either gathering or you're scattering. You're with me, you're against me. You're hot, you're hot or you're cold. Remember, lukewarm is worse than cold. It does not go hot, lukewarm, cold. 
you hear many sermons preached that way, but it does not go like that. It is, according to that scripture, it is hot, cold, lukewarm. And I can't see Christians landing wherever God's going to vomit. And that's where lukewarm Christians are going to land. Lukewarm Christians? Well, they're not Christians. Lukewarm people are going to land. And so God said, I'd rather have you hot or cold than lukewarm. So lukewarm doesn't fit in there. There's no in-between, folks. There's no fence to sit on. You're either one way or you're the other. Um, the Christians were first called, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You don't become a Christian, then become a disciple. Although some of you have probably heard that. It says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, and that was a term of derision that came to them from the unbelieving world. You little Christ. You see? It was, a, it was a swear word. The word Christian. We don't, we don't use it that way these days, but that was the way it was used then. It was used as a swear word. You little Christ. Okay? Causing all the trouble, saying we shouldn't worship the emperor. Okay? Now, so then you can, you can have a routine choice that's inconsistent with that. Now, that, or what we commonly call, what I commonly call anyway, you can strain your relationship with the Lord without breaking it entirely off. However, when you're dealing with a routine choice, you need to deal with that thing ruthlessly. Any sin in your life, you need to deal with ruthlessly. Why? Scripture says we should exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. And any sin that we allow in our lives, when the Holy Spirit starts to convict us or the truth starts to convict us, and we don't pay attention to that, we're in immediate danger of being, number one, deceived, and then having our hearts hardened, and then going on into more sin. So any sin that comes up in our life, we need to recognize that, even though it may be on a routine level, that it is related to our ultimate intention, in that if we, if we start um, uh, neglecting conviction at this point, it can move up. And we can eventually turn away from the Lord because of that. Now, I believe in security. I don't believe in unconditional security. I believe in conditional security, but I do believe in security. I don't believe that I have to walk around worrying about whether or not I'm going to be lost all the time. I have the firm conviction that after knowing the Lord for 10 years, that it's going to be very difficult for me, if I want to turn away from the Lord, it's going to be very difficult for me to do. I have to make some pretty strong choices to get over the truth that I know in my mind, I'd have to battle with the Holy Spirit, tooth and nail, to try to, to, try to get away because of His love for me. Um, I, don't, I don't walk around sweating about whether or not I'm saved. You know? And if, if, I, if I sin, I don't worry about whether or not I'm, I'm saved or lost anymore. I say, okay, now I've got to deal with this sin. And the commitment that I've made here, if we make a commitment to live for what we know is right, then that commitment in itself, when we do something on a routine level, will automatically bring pressure to bear on that thing. You get angry with somebody in the kitchen and your ultimate intention to live for what you know what is right will immediately bring pressure to bear on that and says, get that right. You see? And it protects us in that way. We're protected by commitment. Protected by commitment. And that's what this is. It's a commitment in a relationship to live for what we know is right rather than living for our own self selfish gratification. Now, I'm going to take this and turn it around now. If your ultimate intention is for yourself, then you have your subordinate choices and your routine choices flowing out of that. I do not agree with the idea, although you can hold whatever you want, you just have to 
figure out whether you're going to go that way. Finney does. Finney goes this way. I do not agree with the idea that if you're selfish in your intentions, that you cannot make on a subordinate or a routine level a choice that is right. I do not agree with that. That would be total moral depravity, and I don't. I don't agree with the idea. Um, I don't believe that the unbeliever cannot make a right choice because they've committed themselves to selfishness. Otherwise, why can, why can God hold them guilty if they can't make a right choice? He does hold them guilty for not making the right choices. You see? Because they can do so. And so, if it's impossible for them because they've got a selfish intention, if it's impossible on a subordinate or routine level to do anything that's good, then God is unjust in judging them for that. Okay? So, I don't hold with the idea that a person can look really good, but because they have a selfish intention, every choice that they make is evil. Don't agree with that. Unbelievers can be moved with the idea of the truth and the idea of unselfishness in the same way that we can be moved with that idea, because it's a basic thing to human understanding. So, um, you guys can think that through. But uh, just so that you know that there's more than one opinion, because uh, you, you will hear that opinion around that because a person has a selfish intention, they cannot do anything that is unselfish. Well, I disagree with that. So you know that there's, at least you don't have to go one way or the other. You can hold whichever one you want. There's two sides to this thing. Yeah, we... Be careful with the word cause. Sin is not cause. Sin is influence, but it is not cause. There's no cause for sin. Sin is a choice, something you choose to do. You can talk about the influences of, that your mother had on you uh, as you were growing up that influenced you towards particular kinds of sin, but you can't talk about that as a cause because God always says that you're responsible for sin because you choose it and it's not cause. Okay? But, but yes, sometimes we do have to deal with those things, but that's more an area of healing than repentance. When I talk with somebody about the influences from their environment that, um, that influence them towards a particular kind of sin, I deal with the sin separately from the influence and say, yes, the sin, now you need to repent of the sin that you committed. It was your fault, you repent. And now, let's deal with the, the hurt that came because of your environment, because of the way your family was and deal with them as two separate things, even though they're very, very much mixed together in the person's life. See, we have to deal with sin as sin, as responsibility, and that the person needs to repent because they, they could have chosen not to do that. And then we need to deal with the hurt that may have come to them or the wrong patterning in their lives as a separate thing in healing. Remember when we talked about homosexuality, that there's a difference between the condition that's developed by the family pattern and, and the sin that's involved, and we need to keep those separate? That's how I deal with that. Okay? Okay, so we're talking about repentance. Then when we talk with people about repentance from sin, we don't deal with them on the routine or the subordinate level. When you're talking with them about turning their lives away from selfish gratification, you talk about it on an ultimate level that they need to turn their lives away from um, an ultimate intention of selfish gratification in their life, having things centered around themselves, living for themselves and, for, and living against what they know is right. I say that, against what they know is right, because that's easier for the unbeliever to relate to than living for God. See, I use those words when I'm talking to the person that doesn't know Christ. 
um, you're living against what you know is right. Because when you're living for what you know is right, you will be living for God. Because you'll be living the same way he lives, for the highest well-being of the universe and, and, and his being. Okay? So when you start living for what you know is right, for what is intelligent, then you will be living the way God wants you to live. Okay? That's a little easier for people to relate to than the idea of you're not living for God. And then I relate that to, because you are not living according to what you know is right, you are in rebellion against God, because God as the governor of the universe has enforced this as the way people should live. So then you're in rebellion against God. You're living the way you know you shouldn't live, and then secondly, because God is the governor, and he enforces that, as the way people should live intelligently, then you are now then then they can understand what that means to be in rebellion against God. Because God God says that's the way you should live too, and he enforces that in his government. And so if because they're living contrary to what they know is right, then they're living in rebellion against God as well. <clears throat> so when we talk to people we need to talk with them about their ultimate intention rather than their subordinate or routine choices. And that's that's why you're um you see things like, most of you, I mean, you know this, I think all of you know this. You don't deal with whether or not a person smokes. You see, you don't deal with the external volition, you see, as to whether they smoke or drink or, um, you know, go to um, sex shops or whatever. You don't, you don't deal with those things. You deal with it up here, you see, because this is coming out of up here. Their selfish gratification. You can deal with that in saying that, yes, that is wrong, and that shows that you are centered around yourself. That's an indication that you're living for your own selfish gratification. But if we deal with those things alone, by themselves, and only attack those, the person will never really understand what repentance means. You see? And they won't come to a change in their life of real conversion. They'll just change the outward forms of their life. You see? Right, somebody has a track. I don't know if it's Harry or not. Uh, 30 reasons why not to go to church or something like that. 30 bad reasons for going to church. Anyway, anyway, the whole, the whole thing is based around selfishness. If people go to church for selfish reasons, and going to church in itself is not necessarily a good thing, depends on why you're doing it. Depends on your motive. That's involved. The outward volition is not the thing. It's the end to which the person is living. That's important. So when we talk with people about repentance, turning away from sin, you talk with it in talk about it in terms that they understand. You know that you're not living intelligently. You know that you're living contrary to what you know is right. And so you need to stop that and change your life away from a motive of self-gratification and start living for what you know is right. Okay? For the highest well-being of other people rather than for your selfish gratification. Okay? Yeah, right. Yeah, it depends on what the, what kind of choice it is. Yeah, he could have had a purpose, and his purpose was probably self-gratification in most of those cases. He had a purpose, but what's his purpose, you know? Is it this one or is it this one? Yeah, yeah I'm, when people sin, they have a purpose for sinning. We, we have reasons for the things that we do, but uh, whether or not they're good reasons is another question. Yes, true. Okay, so then turning away from sin is a condition of salvation. If that does not happen in us, God cannot justly release us from the execution of the law that we deserve to have. And thirdly, it is necessary for us, and you can, you're going to begin to see now how all these relate to each other, it is necessary for us to place our confidence in God again. This is a part of repentance, that is, having faith 
towards God. Repentance and faith towards God. Now, where does it say that? Acts what? 17? Uh, uh, it's 26. Yeah, right. That's to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order, that, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's just interesting. It says to open their eyes so that they... This is um, Acts 26.18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's a condition Turning from darkness to light and turning from the dominion of Satan to God is a condition in order that people may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Um, there, another one I'm looking for, though, it talks about turning them from... No, it's not Acts 16. Acts 20, 21. Yeah, right. Solely testifying, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's two aspects here. Repentance has to be involved, turning away from sin, but also turning towards God. That is, having faith and confidence in Him. Stopping our rebellion against Him and placing our trust in Him again. Now, we saw that one of the problems that God had in the, in the uh, atonement was that he had to change the idea of his character in men's minds in order that they might freely be able to turn and have relationship with him. And through the cross, the effect of the cross on a person's mind, it begins to straighten out their idea of what God is like in order that um, they can turn and say, yes, now I can place my confidence in you. I see what you're really like. And the word faith means confidence in Greek. It means to have confidence in someone, to trust someone. And you can't trust someone if you don't know their character. And you especially can't trust someone if you think their character is bad. And so through the cross, God straightens out our concept, starts to straighten out, I should say, excuse me. He starts to straighten out our concept of what he is like in order that we might be able to come to him and, and place our confidence in him. Now, of course, Placing your confidence in someone is still a choice that you make. Faith is a choice, not just a feeling. There's some feelings involved, but faith is essentially a choice. You place your confidence in someone else. Um, if we waited all the time for people to do the right thing, for us to place our confidence in them, we would never have confidence in anybody. Okay? We have to make a choice. And sometimes that choice has to be made even though there's nothing coming from the other person. And we have to trust their motives, even though they're not expressing anything to us. And believe it or not, in some cases, even though you don't understand what the person has done and it appears to hurt you, you can still choose to trust them. Um, 
Now, I've been hurt many times um, by leaders, and I found that I can still, if I know the leader, I can still choose to, to trust him, even though I've been hurt by something that he has said. And as I, as I trust, I say, say, well, I trust his motives. I don't believe that he would deliberately do something to try to hurt me. Can't believe that because of the way he's living for the Lord. <clears throat> because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life, I can't believe that. So I trust him that he didn't mean to hurt me when he said that. And then that urges me to go and find out, what did you mean when you said that? And to get that relationship restored. Okay? And we can, have, we can have confidence and that can protect us in many ways. I shared this with a, um, uh, a woman that was working for a chaplain on a military base. Shared this with her. Tremendous sister in the Lord, and she was um, directing a um, little league, little league uh, baseball thing with the kids. Her husband did that, and he was out, he was out of town or something. He was on the, in the field or something. I don't know what, where he was, but she was directing it for him. And uh, I had just talked with her about this, about being able to trust other people's motives, and not only trusting them, but declaring that we trust their motives, especially when somebody else comes up and questions them in front of us. Very important not to receive slander or anything like that, but to say, I know I trust that person's motive. We need to go to the person and find out what's going on. And uh, I told her about that. And as she was working with the kids, there were two other people there. And this woman said something to her, which appeared as, as if it was intended to hurt her. And a man who was there turned to the, turned to the, to the, to the sister in the Lord and said, um, did you hear what she said? And she turned to him and she said, I trust your motive. And uh, she said, Michael, there, nothing, nothing could come up in me because I had said that. Okay? And although she had said something that I could have seen, yes, could have hurt me, and he obviously recognized that that, was, that, that could have been uh, something directed to hurt me, because I said, I trust her motive, it didn't allow anything to rise up in me. And then she was able to deal with whether or not the, the woman actually was intending to hurt her. And we can do that, folks. We can make a choice to trust someone else's motives if we don't have enough evidence to see what, what really is going on. And in most cases, we don't. Somebody says something, we, in many cases, we don't know why they said what they said. Okay, anyway. So, speaking of faith then, we have confidence in God. We put our trust in God. Abraham believed God. Didn't believe the promise God had made. That's not what it said. And he believed the promise, but that's another thing. He believed God. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. When he believed God. When a person turns away from their sin and places their confidence in God, what are they doing? They're fulfilling the end of the government. And God then can free them from what they deserve to receive. Or, as, it, as, it's, um, con, as it's called, he accounts it to them as righteousness. You see that? They place their confidence in God. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Because he was, he was fulfilling the end of the, uh, the, the government when he turned away from his disbelief and turned to trusting God. Okay. Um, this concerns uh, the reestablishment of a lost relationship. Because of our rebellion, we have lost relationship with God. We don't have confidence in Him. We're, 
actively not placing our confidence in him, but placing it in ourselves or materialism or the occult or some other part of the, you know, some other part of the spiritual world. We're placing it in something, but not in God. And so as we turn and place our confidence in him, it's the rest, speaking of the restoration of a lost relationship. <clears throat> now, well, let's, um, I'll take that later. Fourthly, you can see how these could all happen, wham, one time in a person. It all concerns your relationship with God. It can happen just snap. You know, just suddenly, you can be talking to a person and suddenly they can begin, they can begin to weep and, and start confessing their sin and the next moment start speaking in tongues. I watched that happen many, many times. You know, they get saved, filled the Holy Spirit, all in one shot. Wham! You know, it can happen awfully fast. You know, that usually happens, though, when a person understands what's going on in salvation. Wham! Sometimes it happens when they don't have an awful lot of understanding. I've seen that, too. Praying with a guy out in the street one time, and he was, he was high on LSD. We laid our hands on him and prayed for him, and we asked him if he wanted to come down so we could, because he couldn't pay attention. And we asked him if he wanted to come down so he could pay attention properly. And he said, yeah. So we laid our hands on him and prayed for him. We're standing out in the street, Seattle, you know, people walking by in the corner. And we laid our hands on him, prayed for him, came down just like that. He went, wow. Looked around and I said, now look, just because Jesus has worked a miracle and taken all the ass out of your body or whatever he's done to, to take care of you and bring you down does not mean that you have become a Christian just because God has worked a miracle for you. That's a different thing. And so we started talking with him about that. And I asked him if he, if he wanted to commit his life to the Lord. And he said, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know. He seemed very eager to do that. So, so we prayed for him. And as, as we were praying for him, laying our hands on him, he raised his hands up and he started speaking in tongues. So we were standing out in the middle of the street, tears running down his face, speaking in tongues. You know? Yeah. And you're fighting battles with the fear of man. <laughs> you know? I, I kept my eyes closed the whole time. I didn't want to see who was walking by or... Anything like that, you know. Yeah. You have, uh, you know, you just have to, sometimes you just have to go, well, okay, God, well, I'll, I'll accept this and I'll have to let my reputation die or whatever. I was sitting in a, sitting in a restaurant one time with a brother. We had been out witnessing on the street and it was freezing cold, so we, we came inside for a half an hour to get a, you know, piece of pie and a cup of coffee so our hands could warm up because we couldn't, couldn't, uh, you give people pieces of literature because we couldn't use our fingers to get the pieces apart, you know. And uh, uh, so we were sitting there, and a guy that we had ministered to before came and sat down, came and sat down by me, and um, it was very, very obvious that the guy was um, was advertising that he was homosexual, and we had been ministering to this guy thing, and so it was very obvious to anybody that was looking that this guy was involved in homosexuality. I mean, when a guy's wearing a bonnet. You know, there's something, that, you know, that's that's pretty obvious, um, and everybody could tell that this guy was involved in homosexuality. And he came over, he sat down, and we were we were talking with him, ministering to him. You know, I went through real battles with my reputation at that point because all the people in the restaurant, you know, were all, mm, yes. And I so you, know, you go through times like that, and you just have to die to your reputation. Anyway. Yes, Jesus wasn't afraid to be associated. I, I really learned something during that, because while that was happening, I really felt the Lord spoke to me and said, I wasn't afraid to be associated with you. I went, 
Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, if you weren't afraid to be associated with me in my sin, well then, I guess I shouldn't be afraid to be associated with other people in their sin. Okay, anyway, let's go on. The fourth thing here is that the person must understand that they're going to have to continue in that life. That you do not give your life to the Lord for a few minutes and then go on living your life the way you want. You submit to Jesus as Lord, and that's got to be for eternity. Not just this life, but for the rest of your existence, which is going to be forever. You give yourself to Jesus. Jesus is not, as I've said before, Jesus is not a trip to be tried. He's the Lord to be submitted to. You don't try Jesus. In the sense that you try a drug, or you try transcendental meditation, you know. When people get into trips, what they do is they keep one foot in their own life where they want it, in their selfishness, and they put one foot out into their trip, and they try to find out if something's going on out there that they want, and if they're going to want to commit themselves to that. But God demands that you understand first what it, yeah, understand first what it involves to give your life to Christ, and then jump in, and not just both feet, but every part of you. Okay? And Jesus said, for that reason, you sit down and you consider whether or not you're going to give your life to me. And you don't, don't do that. Don't give your life to me unless you've considered. That's in Luke 14. He says, it's dumb for somebody to start building a tower when they don't know whether or not they have enough money to finish it. It's dumb for a king to go out and, and try to take another army when he doesn't know what the size of the other army is because it may be bigger than his and he might not be able to do it. Better for him to send out an, uh, send out a group of people and say, ask for terms of peace. <laughs> he can't make it. And he said, and if you if you aren't going to go all the way through with me, he said, then don't start. Or everybody that comes by will say, look at that fool. Started to build a tower and didn't have enough money. Okay. Luke 14. So you can point people to that when you tell them, well, look, you better consider before you give your life to the Lord, that this is going to have to continue. It's something that's going to change you, and it's going to change um, it's going to change you forever. And it's something to which you must be committed forever. Now, that sounds heavy when you're doing it, but and yes, it's true, it's heavy. It involves the person's entire life. You can tell by the, the statements that the, um, that the enemies of the Christians in the book of Acts, the statements that they said, tells you a lot about what the apostles were preaching. These people have come. They've turned the world upside down and they're preaching another king, one Jesus. They must have been preaching that Jesus is king and you don't worship the emperor, you worship Jesus. Jesus is king, you submit to him first. He comes before the emperor of Rome. Okay. And all you had to do, if, if you were, were going to get fed to the lions, all you had to do was take a little bit of incense and drop it on the incense thing and raise your hand and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do to be free. And the Christians would the Christians would look at that and they'd go, Jesus is Lord. And they'd feed him, they'd feed him to the lions. And that's all you had to do is just a little bit of worship, say, Caesar is Lord, and you were free. I forget exactly which um, martyr it was. Maybe it was, was it Polycarp? That uh, they well, another thing you have to do is say down. Or another thing you could do is say down with the infidels, meaning the Christians. See, were called unbelievers. They were the ones called unbelievers because they didn't believe in the em emperor. 
you say, and worship the gods of the gods of Rome. And so all you had to do was say, down with the infidels, meaning your brothers and sisters, and yourself, and you could be free. So I think it was Polycarp when he got um, when he got uh, he was in the arena, and he was an old old man. And they said, now look, you're an old man, you could be free. All you have to do is say, down with the infidels, and we'll let you go. And he said, okay, down with the infidels. <laughs> Pointing to all the people in the stand. <laughs> they burn him at the stake. <laughs> Polycarp? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's in the book of Acts someplace. <laughs> These men of which, which have turned the world upside down or come here and hither and they preach another king, one Jesus. Probably 19. Not 17 or 19. One of the two. Uh, 17.6 Yes, these men who have upset the world have come here also and Jason... Yeah, yeah. Con contrary to the decree of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they were preaching, Jesus is king, you submit to him. Jesus is the ruler. He's the ultimate ruler and not the emperor of Rome. And so people need to understand that when they give their lives to the Lord, it's got to be forever. And that this is not a one-sided transaction that they're getting into. It's not something that's happening just from God's side. It's something that's happening from their side as well. Of course, we need to emphasize the other aspect. It's not something that's happening just from their side. That when they continue with the Lord. It's not going to be dependent entirely upon what they do. But as they meet the conditions, God is going to move in their lives to help them to continue. Okay? Now, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. You see, God is involved in our, in our being kept. Okay? God is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say whether or not it's conditional, you say. We believe it's conditional, of course. <clears throat> okay, so it's not a one-sided thing either from just man or just God. Now, we looked at the grounds of salvation and the conditions of salvation. It is by grace through faith. And we need to tell people both parts. If God had not offered um, a way for us to be free, we would not have been able to be free. And yet... Even though God has offered it, it does not mean that it is applied to us, but that is upon condition. It's by grace, that's the grounds, through faith, that's the condition. Now, in this continuance, it's expected that we will live in perfection. And everybody cringed. But the word perfection in the scripture does not mean certain things. We'll look at what it doesn't mean. It does not mean to be faultless, to not have any faults. It's not what the word means. So God is not saying that we have to, not commanding us to be faultless. So we can be perfect now. And he commands us to be perfect now. He doesn't command us to be perfect just in the future. He commands us to be perfect now. Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect. You shall therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Okay, commands us now. Number two, it's not claiming a victory you don't have. 
not saying of something about yourself that isn't true. This gets back to the, uh, stand, the standing and state idea, positional theology. You have this standing with God that's different from your state, and it doesn't matter what, this is the idea. I'm not saying this is true. This is the, I, I used to teach this very strongly. The, uh, the idea is that you have a standing, a legal standing with God that's different from your state. You see, now that's because God has dealt with retributive justice. That's the idea. So you have a legal standing with God that's different from your state, and it doesn't really matter what's happening as far as your choices are concerned right now. God views you as righteous, even though right now you may be sinning. You see? And so it's not claiming a victory you don't have. It's not claiming a position, because you're not two people, you're one person. You are you, and you are either holy or you're not. The Bible speaks of you as being one way or the other. You're either wise or you're unwise. You're obedient, you're disobedient. You're holy or you're unholy. Always speaks of us as what we really are. So it's not claiming a victory you don't have. It's not saying, well, I have this position with God, even though I'm in rebellion against God right now. It's not that kind of thing. Uh, number three, it's not having a root of sin extracted from you. Some people think that the idea of sanctification is having this sinful root taken out of you, or having your Adamic nature taken away. And they think that that's the idea. So that they can't sin anymore. That's not it either. Because sin is not something inside of you that needs to be ripped out. Sin is a choice that you make, contrary to what you know. What you need to do is not make the choice. So what is it then? What does it mean to, to walk in perfection, to, con to continue in the, in the way God wants us to live? That is, it's living as God lives. Matthew 5.48, it says, You shall therefore be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Obviously, that's not um, extent, because we're not the same kind of beings that God is. So it must mean manner. We are to be perfect as, in manner, God is perfect. Living up to all the knowledge that we have of what is right and wrong. We talked about that when we talked about holiness. Okay, it involves basically two things. Having the right attitude, which in itself could be a choice. Having the right attitude and having the right action. That is, the right attitude is to love righteousness and hate iniquity, like Jesus did. Right attitude, love righteousness, and hate iniquity. Or, as it is commonly taught, have the fear of the Lord. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Love righteousness and hate iniquity. And then... Secondly, it's an action. It's living up to the light that you have. We only live one circumstance at a time. Only live one circumstance at a time. And in that circumstance, we can choose to do what we know is right. Now, choosing to do what we know is right may be like this. I'm faced with a temptation. I know that I've got habits in my past. That are that are that would bowl me over if I'm not careful, and my the meeting the condition in that case may be to go, Lord, help. That may be the meeting of the condition, so that the Lord can help me. But at that point, I can still fulfill. I don't have to sin. I can still fulfill everything that God wants me to do, even if it's indirectly because of my selfish habit patterns. If I have to go, Lord, help me, and through His help, I fulfill that. And there'll be some things we'll just look at it and we'll go, oh, I don't want to do that, and choose not to do it. It'll be simple. But there'll be other things where we have 
uh, habit patterns that, that move on us, okay, that then we indirectly have to do that and say, Lord, help me in this situation. And indirectly, through the fulfilling of that condition, we, are, we receive strength to be able to overcome in that case. And uh, that, by the way, is not some mystical, magical thing where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and tampers with your will. <laughs> you see, it suddenly, ta-da, I've got strength to overcome temptation. The Holy Spirit will start... Temptation is what? It's an influence on your mind, right? And the Holy Spirit will, will bring the influence from the other side to equal that out to where you're in a neutral place. Okay? Temptation comes from this side and builds up a pressure in your mind of influence. And the Holy Spirit, as you say, Lord, help me, will bring influence from the other side. He'll bring verses of Scripture to your mind. He'll, he'll bring thoughts of when you made restitution for that sin before. He'll say, look at the cross. Look what sin costs. Think about the grief of God that will happen. And he begins to build that up in your mind till you're brought to the place where it's equal. And that's your door of escape, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. Your door of escape. And then you're left in the place where you're free to choose one or the other. And that's why, if at that point you choose to do that which is wrong, you know you have done something wrong. <laughs> you feel very guilty. Because the Holy Spirit has brought it out to that point. Okay, so can you live two minutes without sinning? <laughs>